Welcome to the new Arab Voice, our podcast bringing you compelling stories and deep dives from the Middle East, Africa, Asia, and beyond. Following on from last week's episode focusing on how the coronavirus is affecting the Muslim fasting month of Ramadan, this week we will focus on the hardships that many across the Middle East and North Africa are facing during this month, especially vulnerable groups. In this virus-hit region, domestic, social and political issues, lockdowns and economic crises made worse by collapsing oil prices are aggravating an already poor outlook for the region. While the holy month of Ramadan is usually a time for serenity, reflection and celebration, these tough circumstances along with lockdown and social distancing measures are making Ramadan this year an extremely challenging time for the people of the region. In this episode, we will explore these circumstances and challenges in detail. We will focus on how the region's financial downturn coupled with the demands of Ramadan could fuel social unrest and the effect on mental health and general well-being of Muslims across the globe. You know, you've got Ramadan, which is making it more and more difficult for people who are facing uh, mental health issues. If you look at the average stat of black and minority ethnic communities will more likely to have mental health issues. Next, we will discuss why the outbreak of COVID-19 in war-torn Yemen is being ignored by many, even though an outbreak in the country could result in an unprecedented death toll. Ramadan came to us as a blessing. We almost came back to our normal life. We can see people, streets are full of people. People are uh, almost practicing their daily life normally. Finally, we'll discuss why lockdown measures are producing life-threatening circumstances for women in the region. Ramadan can be a strain in which um, there is pressure on families while they're fasting to also cater to other family members. Frustrations, particularly on the part of abusers, uh, who then become more abusive during this time. And so we tend to see in some cases an increase in domestic violence. According to a report released by the IMF, almost every country in the Middle East and North Africa is predicted to shrink in the coming months. But some countries may weather the storm better than others. Oil-rich and gas-rich countries will not be spared. Kuwait is expected to experience a 1.1% decline of its output. Oman's economy is projected to shrink by 2.8%, while Algeria's already ailing economy is predicted to suffer a 5% contraction. Egypt is the only country expected to post any growth this year at 2%, although that number is still far lower than the 5.6% expansion seen last year. To put it simply, and if this is just numbers to you, the economic situation in the region is devastating. And with poverty and unemployment rates in non-oil economies already in the double digits before the pandemic, the consequences for social stability will be dire. Tunisia's tourism sector, for example, will lose $1.4 billion in potential revenues, with up to 400,000 people employed in the sector potentially losing their jobs. The IMF has reportedly warned the country's economy could shrink by up to 4.3% in 2020 due to the impact of the coronavirus. 
This drop would be the steepest in Tunisia's history since it gained independence in 1956. In 2011, widespread unemployment and poverty triggered the Jasmine Revolution, the first of many uprisings known as the Arab Spring that spread across the region. The rest, as they say, is history. The confluence of the coronavirus, economic deterioration and Ramadan, where households' demands for foodstuffs soar, is leading to a combination of purchasing power collapse and inflation. A recipe for renewed social unrest that could reproduce those uprisings at a time when many across the region expect to be celebrating in peace and dignity. In Lebanon, hit by a financial and political crisis, as well as a coronavirus outbreak, mass protests have returned to the streets this week as hyper inflation, unemployment and lockdown leave many unable to buy the most basic needs. But the center of protests this time is in Tripoli, a Muslim-majority impoverished city with the protests starting every night after iftar despite the lockdown and Ramadan. Some of these protests have been marred by violence, with a young protester killed in Tripoli after soldiers allegedly fired live ammunition at them. Many have had enough. They blame their misery on decades of corruption and incompetence and say the coronavirus is now the least of their worries. With this disastrous financial instability comes a raft of other issues, including psychological hardships. I spoke with Rania Awad, who is a clinical associate professor of psychiatry at Stanford University, the director of the Stanford Muslim Mental Health Lab, and the director of the San Francisco branch of the Khalil Center, which is a psychological and spiritual community wellness center advancing the professional practice of psychology rooted in Islamic principles. She says that spending the holy month in isolation is already affecting the mental health of Muslims across the world. Special populations that we're most concerned about related to mental health When you look at the fact that it is a quarantined Ramadan, and you know we know that the elderly are more susceptible to contracting the virus and also fatality from it. So that sense of isolation is very hard on them. Then if you look at another group of people, um, for example, when the coronavirus started, some of the at baseline mental health conditions like anxiety or depression have both been exacerbated by the by just the fear of the pandemic and the anxieties around, you know, are they going to contract it next or are they going to be able to take care of a family member or will a family member or loved one pass away? For example, obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, because there's so much emphasis, and for good reason, of course, on how this is spread and needing to wash. And so imagine if somebody already has an issue related to washing, those who suffer from eating disorders, um, because fasting in itself is a sort of food restricting. And so there is um, definitely a concern about whether people with you know, more severe cases of eating disorder should fast in the first place or not. And then there's the general population who may not have had baseline mental health conditions to start with. But now the fear of the unknown, the concerns about whether or not we're going to find a vaccine and will I be able to protect my children and you know, all the different fears and concerns that people are having, um, definitely we're finding that the, the spike in mental health uh, conditions has really gone up. The financial downturn is also affecting people's livelihoods and employment opportunities, which may affect the way people afford the celebrations of Ramadan. There's the getting ready for a month of fasting. That then means, you know, needing to eat a very robust meal in order to, in the nighttime, in order to complete the daytime fast the next day. So there's a concern there. There's also a concern with um, at the end of the month of Ramadan is the Eid, which is our holiday, 
and usually that would be a time where um, there's you know gifts and celebration and um, you know uh, if you will a bit of a splurge for having completed the month of fasting and for many that means that element is going to be missing it's 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 kind of like missing christmas Rania says the Khalil Center integrates Islamic principles with therapy practices in order to provide help to Muslims who struggle with mental health issues. They have an international crisis line, so if you're ever in need, Google Crises Helpline Khalil Center and you can find the details to contact them from anywhere in the world. I also spoke with Shaheen Ashraf, the head of advocacy at Islamic Relief. And what we see in terms of inequalities, inequalities, for example, in the UK, uh, what we're seeing is an absolute increase uh, and recognizable understanding that race and racial inequalities are a factor for COVID-19. There was a report that was done by The Guardian, a piece of research, which revealed that ethnic minorities in England are dying disproportionately in high numbers compared to others. And what we're seeing in that is that race and racial inequalities are a factor in COVID-19. The reason being is that the disproportionate rates of poverty, insecure and low paid labor often is undertaken by key workers plus poorer conditions and overcrowded housing, all of which are putting um, ethnic minorities more at risk of COVID-19 infection, specifically when we're talking about the financial. Um, so what you're seeing is as a result of the population increase and um, the slowing down of the economies has, has led to an exasperating effect on these issues. From a global perspective, um, I, what I can say is from an Islamic relief side, that the impact has been more on women. You know, when the quarantine started, the women's, for example, at Islamic relief, we did the women's economic empowerment programs. And of those empowerment programs that you see that more women who owned market stalls as a result of the work that we were doing um, are unemployed as a, as a result of the COVID-19 factor. Shaheen also points out that women are the victims of financial burdens on families suffering grave abuse once their husband's income is affected by the ailing economy. It appears that these patriarchal notions of women's roles um, during this period of time, specifically when they're within their homes, um, this kind of social knit fabric that we're, in, we're, we're juxtaposed to, that's what's bringing on as well as the added, um, as well as the added narrative around, uh, you know, the individual risk factors, for example, you know, the individual risk factors to domestic abuse could be low income. It could be, um, you know, heavy alcohol use or depression and suicide attempts, anger, hostility towards individuals. And we're talking about intimate partner violence here. You know, it could be um, as a result of the financial uh, uh, loss of job, particularly in this uh, COVID-19 period, within this pandemic where you will see many people being unemployed and you see that kind of emotional dependence and insecurity that arises as a result of that behavior of unemployment. And then on top of that, the, the, the hostility towards women who, um, who happen to be the only person within that, you know, within that space of yours, without a space. As Shaheen points out, the most vulnerable communities are those which are affected the most when the economy fails. So she says now is an important moment for governments to realize they need to restructure our systems to safeguard those most vulnerable. You know, the world has to change. We have to change. I mean, will we go back to the same same space? You know, how do you rebuild civil society in a space in which governments are giving less funding to charitable organizations 
yet the charities are the frontline responders. Well, reevaluate our priorities, but also understand that when you're talking about the definition of where, who guides our economic policies, which is mostly men, right? Um, where do women fit into that? There are no women in, in, in that, hardly any women in that space. And actually, the reality for this world is what is the reality like for the rest of, of the world post-pandemic? We need to kind of look at the structural issues that have existed. All these challenges are augmented when you add them to living in a war zone. So let's talk about Yemen. Coronavirus will never come to Yemen. The atmosphere in Yemen for Ramadan is the most beautiful in the entire Arab world. This is the voice of Sana'a resident Mohammed Hadi, who comes out at dusk for prayer and iftar, the meal when fast is broken, at the courtyard of a mosque in the Yemeni capital. The recently announced outbreak of the coronavirus does not seem to be keeping him away from the rituals of Ramadan, while in the rest of the Muslim world, mosques stand empty and communal fast-breaking feasts are cancelled under the novel coronavirus lockdown. Others interviewed on the ground are more cautious. Two more residents of the capital warn against congregating, even during the holy month, and worry that others are not taking the virus as seriously as they should. Yemen's war-torn health system is especially fragile and susceptible to a possible mass outbreak of the coronavirus. A recent string of deaths across a number of aid and hospitals sparked concerns in Yemen on Tuesday, with some alleging the health ministry is involved in cover-ups of coronavirus infections. Yemenis have called out the Ministry of Public Health and Population, accusing it of deliberately concealing information on an alleged wide-scale coronavirus outbreak in the war-torn country's temporary capital, Aden. In a public Facebook post, Osama Nasher, a Yemeni doctor residing in Germany, alleged he had received a private message from ER doctors working in Aden hospitals, as well as Aden residents, notifying him of people dying after experiencing shortness of breath, fever, and a sore throat, all common symptoms of the novel coronavirus. Publicly responding to Nasher's post, some Yemenis reported that relatives and family members had died under similar circumstances in hospitals in Aden's Al-Mansura district, as well as other regions. Alarmed by the deaths, Yemenis described the situation in the capital as a medical emergency, calling on the World Health Organization to intervene over concerns of an undetected outbreak that they said the health ministry was ill-equipped to handle. Our livestock... I was really depressed at that time because I was planning to get a scholarship and I prepared all my papers and I have a lot of things in my mind but everything stopped. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't even practice in my normal life. I couldn't go to war. I depend on my family. That's why I was depressed, really depressed at that time. This is Suha. She is 31 an English teacher, and on her way to finishing her master's degree, which almost took her four years to secure after the war devastated the country and certain universities abroad would not accept her due to her nationality. She is now unemployed after the institute where she taught closed and her master's was put on hold because of the social distancing measures. 
The most devastating factor to Suha and millions of others is the economic situation within which they find themselves in. What's really affected us because of the war is the increasing of the prices. It's, if we compare between the prices of the last year and this year, it's almost the double. The rent now, it is unbelievable. It is more than the person salary. With everyday reality destroyed by war and now the lockdown measures, the charity which is usually practiced during Ramadan has been drastically curbed, affecting the livelihood of millions. So in Ramadan, we use it every year. We use it to have some people, some traders who donate for donate food basket. So we help. We collect all these food basket and distribute them among the people who are in need. But this year, we couldn't, and we didn't get any of the, the donations that we used to get every year. And a lot of people this year doesn't have their uh, daily needs, food and so on. They, couldn't, they don't have, because they didn't get the, 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 the donations that they, get every, they use it to get every year in Ramadan. Even dates, you know, we use it to get a lot of uh, big boxes of dates and being distributed in all the houses and all the people, whether they are, they are in need or not. Few amount of boxes only. Even the people who are in need, they didn't get any dates. Some people, they don't have dates at all. They only, they break their fasting by using water. Curfews and lockdowns are nothing new to her, having spent the last five years in a war-torn country where the streets are constantly ridden with life-threatening dangers year-round. She is a resident of Makalla, a coastal town almost 550 kilometers away from Aden, where the first five cases and two deaths were reported. She has an elderly father who she says is not going to the mosque anymore and is breaking fast with them at home. But she says many in her town are living their normal lives with an endemic nonchalance about a possible outbreak of the virus in the town. Ramadan here is almost normal. We are living our normal life. Before Ramadan, we were a little bit in fear. We were in panic because of the, the case of uh, coronavirus. It was in Shihout, she's near from Kalla. It was the only case and the person is now totally fine. We had this news before Ramadan. Ramadan came to us as a blessing. We almost came back to our normal life. We can see people, streets are full of people. People are almost practicing their daily life normally, especially in the afternoon and at night. Streets are crowded. People are praying in the mosque and we had no fear. About 10 million Yemenis are on the brink of famine and 20 million are lacking health care. Not to mention that half the medical facilities still functioning after being ravaged by war are not prepared to deal with the pandemic. So while many are disregarding fears of a coronavirus outbreak, threats to Suha, her family, her elderly father, and the rest of the Yemeni population grow exponentially each day. In 2018, a United Nations report stated that the most dangerous place for a woman is her home. There is also evidence suggesting Ramadan exacerbates the dangers for victims of domestic abuse in their own homes. And with the lockdown, the situation could get even more dire. 
Rathna Begum is the women's rights researcher for the Middle East and North Africa region for Human Rights Watch. She confirmed to me it is common for instances of domestic abuse to increase during Ramadan. Ramadan is a time where families in the Middle East uh, may take to being more generous, being more patient, being more kind. But unfortunately, in some families, Ramadan can be a strain in which um, there is pressure on families while they're fasting to also cater to other family members. Frustrations, particularly on the part of abusers, uh, who then become more abusive during this time. And so we tend to see in some cases an increase in domestic violence. In the situation of domestic workers, it is well known that uh, abuse against domestic workers goes up during Ramadan. And that includes whether it's overwork and excessive workload because domestic workers, like women, um, are expected to cater to entire families. We also can expect an increase of violence against domestic workers during this time, partly because of frayed tensions um, as, as people are feeling the stress of Ramadan, but also because there are just simply too many family members requesting uh, a lot of work and uh, as a result miscommunication, pressure, stress, combining to also with impunity where family members meet out uh, such stresses on domestic workers as well. One country where women are at particular risk is Pakistan. Almost one in three married Pakistani women report facing physical violence according to data released by the World Bank. The country ranked sixth amongst the most dangerous for women in a Thomson Reuters Foundation survey of global experts last year. And recently, a popular and recently a popular Pakistani cleric whose group has been blamed for spreading the coronavirus is facing ridicule after he suggested the pandemic was caused partly by the immodesty of women. Mulana Tariq Jamil appeared on a telethon with Prime Minister Imran Khan last week when he explained various Islamic religious codes and said humanity had been punished in the past for breaking these. The comments spurred an immediate backlash with leading activists and a government minister blasting the cleric. His group, the Tablighi Jamaat Missionary Group, has been blamed for seeding the epidemic in Pakistan by holding a gathering with 100,000 participants in March after the virus had already been detected in the country, leading to hundreds of transmissions. The Human Rights Commission of Pakistan warned that the remarks being made during a live broadcast only compounds the misogyny entrenched in society and may lead to further violence against women. Jamil is one of Pakistan's leading preachers, and his sermons are widely broadcast on Pakistan's state-run and private TV stations during Ramadan, while his YouTube channel has 3.5 million subscribers. Much of Pakistani society operates under a strict code of so-called honor, systemizing the oppression of women in matters such as the right to choose who to marry, reproductive rights, and even the right to an education. Pakistan is also ranked dismal 136 on the UN Development Programme's Gender Inequality Index in 2018, performing worse than most of its South Asian neighbours. According to estimates by the Honor-Based Violence Awareness Network, at least 1,000 women fall victim to honour killings in Pakistan each year.
The freedom of movement for those within Palestine is an extremely complicated situation due to Israeli occupation, which has resulted in the territories being manned by checkpoints, controlling the flow of people in and out of the territories. Regarding the uh, Israeli occupation, of course, and we, we uh, all the time have uh, difficulties and have problems to deal with women, especially women who used to, before the coronavirus, who used to have early marriages inside Israel and also women who are the wives of prisoners. They usually face multiple violence inside their families and they face problems regarding economical pro- problems and violence because they are asked to be uh, the, the householders uh, and the responsibles of their families, of their children. The, the occupation affects all the life aspects uh, of women. This is Saida Al-Trash, the director of a safe house in Palestine's occupied city of Bethlehem, who is tackling challenges working within the occupied territories. She spoke to me about having to scale down her activities and the difficulties she has incurred in aiding women since the start of the coronavirus lockdown. After the coronavirus, all the uh, outreach activities were uh, stopped. We are only now having the shelter activities to help women and protect them Uh, from uh, uh, domestic violence and to help them go out of uh, this problem. She also noted a drop in the number of women approaching the shelter for help. During the COVID-19 virus, we didn't receive any new case to be sheltered in the center because there were there was restrictions of um, Uh, having a uh, new um, victims of violence because of the closure and because they need a special uh, test and special quarantine to uh, guarantee they are not holding the virus. In spite of that, uh, we are preparing to have this transitional uh, places and period in order to uh, guarantee in, uh, women they don't hold the coronavirus and to give them uh, the uh, suitable services of protection and them go out of uh, the domestic violence that they face. Saida says that she has been attempting to expand her services during this time, but ample challenges lie ahead when victims struggle to leave homes because of lockdown measures and Israeli blockades. So as countries are seeing a surge in women subject to domestic abuse, some are finally starting to enact policies to defend them. A new refuge for women has opened following a surge in reports of domestic violence in Tunisia. The new centre offers accommodation for female victims and was set up by Tunisia's Ministry of Women, Family, Children and Elderly Affairs in April. With technical and financial assistance offered by the United Nations Population Fund, The centre is intended to also help prevent transmissions of the novel coronavirus. The initiative was prompted by a new challenge posed by the health crisis. How to accommodate abused women in existing shelters without risking infecting those who are already there. In the time of the pandemic, these fully occupied centres are now wary of receiving new women. Newcomers in the centre remain in quarantine in a reception centre before being transferred to the refuge. 
Since the 23rd of March, when a full-scale quarantine was introduced, reported cases of violence have increased fivefold, according to the Tunisian minister in charge of women's affairs, Shiri Laabadi. After taking a shower, women are given new clothes with hygiene and cleaning products. Strict rules of hygiene and social distancing are instructed inside the building. Meals are served separately with a dining table placed outside each room. Communal areas are disinfected every evening. Tunisia is setting an example for others in the region, but more ambitious efforts must be taken by governments before the lives of women across the globe will be lost at the hands of a danger that flourishes within the confinements of lockdown, our new normal. Thank you for listening to The New Arab Voice. This episode was researched by Ghazia Ohannes, Tanya Hajaji, and Alessandra Bajek, and produced by myself, Gaia Karamatsa. Remember to subscribe to The New Arab Voice on Google, Apple, and Spotify, as well as anywhere else you listen to your podcasts.